This podcast has been sealed by a mysterious force. Would you like to open it? Today we're talking about fans of Chrono Trigger. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Phantopological. My name is Nick G, and today we're talking about uh, something near and dear to our hearts, uh, Chrono Trigger. And here with me to do that are my two best friends, Nick T. Um, R66Y, that is my name. <laughs> don't don't refer to me as, as Nick unless you rename me. Oh, my name's Nick. Hello, nice to meet you. And Nick Z? Let me just say that uh, we haveth our own will. Special guest joining us today. He literally wrote the book on Chrono Trigger. Also, the Chrono Trigger uh, Boss Fight Books book, Michael P. Williams. Michael, thank you for joining us. Hi, everyone. I did not prepare a pun, so deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're going to have to. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm going to get us started because sure. uh, if we don't have a pun, then like, why are we even bothering with this whole episode? <laughs> shut see it down. Can, Just shut, shut it down. down. See if we can find one. <laughs> yeah. Um, as you mentioned, we are talking about Chrono Trigger. So to give a little bit of background on Chrono Trigger in case you are listening to this and don't know what it is, even though I'm pretty sure we've mentioned this on numerous occasions. Four years. Yeah, four years. Probably as long as you've been running this podcast. <laughs> Chrono Trigger is a Super Nintendo JRPG released in 1995. It was developed by Square, notable for such other games as the Final Fantasy series, also Dragon Warrior and many other games. And it's also known for its so-called Dream Team, which consisted of Hironobu Sakaguchi, the creator of Final Fantasy series, Yuji Horii, the creator of Enix's popular Dragon Quest series, and Akira Toriyama, an artist well-known for his work with Dragon Quest and his ongoing manga and anime series, Dragon Ball, among many other things. Uh, it's also featured music by Yasunori Mitsuda, who's most known for the Chrono series, Mario Party, Xenosaga, in terms of music, and Nobuo Uematsu, who is known for their work on the music of Final Fantasy. To put it succinctly, the game follows a group of adventurers who travel through time to prevent a global catastrophe uh, that they definitely will not encounter in their lifetimes. It has since been released and re-released multiple times, with the Super Nintendo and PlayStation version shipping over 2.65 million copies, and the Nintendo DS version having sold almost 800,000 copies, probably more, more than a decade later. That's Chrono Trigger in a nutshell. I decided to look up Google Trends data to see if it's getting more popular or less popular, because that's kind of one of the only yardsticks we have. And it turns out it's not as popular now as it was in 2004. What? I defer to to Mike because you know the fandom probably a little bit more than than we do even though we absolutely love the game. Have you seen Chrono Trigger become more or less popular over time? Uh I think the answer is that there is one property that people love and it's a game that has remained relatively unchanged since its release. The most recent iteration of it was the somewhat disastrous PC port released maybe a year or so ago which was porting the mobile version of it, which was itself a porting of the DS version, which was itself sort of a repurposed version of the SNES version with some PlayStation 2 elements. Oh, goodness. You know, Square, for such a 
wonderful wannabe flagship property, they really haven't treated this game very kindly in releases. So I feel like people are always so excited when there's a new Chrono Trigger thing, and it turns out it's the exact same thing they loved in the worst possible package <laughs> ever. So I can see why, you know, it's sort of like, oh, I'm pulling for this game, but I know they're going to screw it up. And then new players are not really being drawn in, I think, except for, well, it's something I should probably try to know I tried it, but eh, it looks dated. What's the big deal? I think that's a lot of the the reaction I got from new readers of my book or people who are a generation mm-hmm. removed from me. Just It's a charming classic, but you know, no one's clamoring to say this was the, the best JRPG of all time unless they're, you know, my age, uh, mid-30s guys. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. I mean, I don't know what you're what you're talking. About. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was actually going to mention that earlier this week or late last week, they just released the fifth and last major update to the PC version, and now the text doesn't look like garbage. So isn't that nice? This, the, Congrats. <laughs> does the patch also come with like a refund and an apology? <laughs> <laughs> That's really what the fans want. It's just Square to say, "I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We didn't make more of this." I'm sorry the sequel you got is not the sequel you wanted. I'm sorry there's no third game. Just, I just <laughs> want an apology. That's all. <laughs> no matter how <laughs> the ports end up being, just get, just say you're sorry, guys. We miss it. You know what? I decided after paying for it three times, that's enough. <laughs> uh, well, in those uh, popularity statistics that Nick T cited, I wonder if number of times ROM has been downloaded Ooh. is... A stat, because I certainly may have consulted it for research in the book, but uh, I'm sure many people are experiencing it in that way, because it's probably the most pristine way to play the original version of the game without the bells and whistles that have been added over time, just to get that sense of what did the people of 1995 actually play, and instead of something that has been translated, retranslated, patched, plugged in with new content, and, you know, it's... It's just sort of a Frankenstein version of itself, I think, the most recent version. It's kind of like, you know, a decades-long game of telephone. <laughs> it's just gotten passed and stuff has gotten added and changed around. Like, they've re- they retranslated it at one point, did they not? They did. So the retranslator uh, is named Tom Slattery, and he sort of specializes, or had specialized, in translating again those titles that Ted Woolsey, the original sort of square granddaddy of translators, had already put into English, but he had limitations based on ROM size and time, and just, it didn't always work out. So Tom basically solved those Woolsey translations and said, I'm going to respect these and make them a little bit better and try and account for the shortcomings that Ted Woolsey had faced in the process. So it was retranslated, but Tom, who I interviewed for my book, really did try and respect that text because he knew it was canonical for people of a previous generation. But for things like the item names were too long in the original Japanese and couldn't be fit in English, he tried to get around those things. So he took his liberties with it, but at the same time, it was Square's commitment to say, well, look, we respect this property and we want to we make it a little bit better. So probably the Nintendo DS version was the last time they got it right in terms of releasing Chrono Trigger. Okay. Even though I think the original SNES version, the one I grew up with, is probably, you know, it's the canonical version for me. Mm-hmm. It's like comparing the original Star Wars or the one I saw on VHS to the special editions. You know, there's going to be people who like the one and like the other, but for me, my tastes are with the original one. That's fair. (laughs) There's something going on in the chat now. Uh, Artemidge will definitely come back to the new Switch JRPG that you mentioned. 
Octopath, because I think we might have some questions about that. Mm-hmm. Just continuing on through a little bit more of the data quickly, we try to figure out how many people are fans, which is almost impossible. <laughs> <laughs> we know that it sold so many copies, and we know that something like a very dedicated space like the Chrono Trigger subreddit has about 6,000 subscribers, which I'm surprised by. We did an episode at a con last year, and it was only at 5,000. Yeah, the subreddit's gaining popularity. Yeah, it's not dead yet. Interesting. And the uh, the forum, Chrono Compendium, I'm just oh, looking right, now. Yes. Yes, that has 2,840 total members, but that's registered members. So who knows how many of them are dual accounts, how many people are active. It's just a number that's there. And the forums are, you know, active-ish, but more maintenance and checking in. So I don't think it's particularly super active. Well, see, now I just thought, like, is there a Discord? But I can look that up while we're talking. (laughs) Based on those numbers, there's at least thousands of fans of Corona Trigger who are still alive. And probably like hundreds of thousands of fans, depending on like the scale that you want to measure a fan on, right? Like, did they buy the game or are they like diehard making fan art? Like, we'll never be able to tell at what level mm-hmm. and what level is important, but like, there's a lot. There's a lot of people of different levels of dedication. I did find some quick, fast facts from Archive of Our Own. There are about 150 fanfics on Archive of Our Own most of which are just general fic. They're not necessarily romantic or anything like that. The most referenced fandoms other than Chrono Trigger are... Does anybody want to make some guesses? I, I cheated. I mean, I looked on <laughs> fanfic.net, but, but before okay. I looked, my inkling was that Chrono Cross would be a, an easy mashup because mm-hmm. it's a sequel and people want to tell the story of what happened in between. I assumed that Dragon Quest and Dragon Ball would pop up in at least a couple mashups, because people love Akira Toriyama, so that had to happen at some point where Goku met Chrono, and I knew that had to have happened. And probably just General Square, and probably Chrono got pregnant by Sonic the Hedgehog at least once. That's got to have happened, right? It's fanfic, so, you know. I'm just hedging my bets here. At least once? Do I win that bet? Gotta go fast? (laughs) I did not dig that deep, so... Maybe that'll, that'll be like a... Anthropological plus where we answer <laughs> questions nobody really wants to know the yeah. answer to. <laughs> but yes, like the Chrono Cross definitely showed up. There was about 10% of the non just plain Chrono Trigger stuff. Uh, ZNG, any guesses for maybe the other two? Secret of Mana? Nope. That's a good guess. Really? Good guess, though. Mm, FF6. Hey. Uh, yeah. Okay. Top one was Final Fantasy VII, which was slightly more than Chrono Cross at about Ooh. 10% as well. And Final Fantasy VI with another 10% just below hey. Chrono Cross. Huh. They came out pretty close together. Yeah. Yeah. They're also G's top two favorite video games of all time, so I figured that would uh, influence <laughs> it as well. I'm sure there's a story about uh, Chrono and Cloud comparing their swords or something. <gasps> yeah. There's no subtext to that story. So. None whatsoever. It's just dudes with their blades, guys. That's all. Yep. Definitely. No, I'm not going there. I'm going to keep... <laughs> I'm going to keep this this train wreck rolling. <laughs> That's right. I also have one other fact, and that was I found a thread on R True Gaming, which compared the completion rates of a whole bunch of different games based on trophy data, based on achievement data, and based on self-reported data from GameFAQs. And Chrono Trigger has a self-reported completion rate of about 66%, compared to the overall completion rate of 63%. And for some reason, and I don't know why there's a big discrepancy, when you look at the Steam achievements only 10 percent of people have completed the game who have played it on steam 
Man, I don't know why it's such a big difference. Does that mean completed it to from start to finish and reached an ending or reached all of the endings? How is completion measured in terms of multiple endings in a game? Right. I think for GameFAQs, it's all self-reported. So I imagine it's got to an ending. Mm-hmm. For Steam, I specifically looked because the only achievements are for the endings. Mm-hmm. So 10% had gotten to the standard ending. Mm-hmm. And since you pretty much have to beat that before you can get to any of the other endings, I took that to mean like 10.4% have actually completed the game on Steam. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know why there's such a big difference, and I don't think it's got all the endings because I can guarantee you that nobody wants to bother with like half of the endings. <laughs> well, they're on YouTube. Once you've played the game once, you know, the mystery is gone. With, <laughs> with the SNES era, you could wonder what's actually going to happen, and now you can watch a 20-minute video saying... Okay, I guess that one was cool. There's one where, like, a frog is dancing around. Like, who wants to complete another 40 hours to watch it's, it's... a sprite of a frog dancing? Like, that is that is masochistic. No one does it. It's definitely not that the endings are worth the effort of getting the endings every time. <laughs> but there's this, like, there's some of the game that I'm not seeing. Yeah. And this is what I have to... I didn't even want to read text descriptions of what the endings were <laughs> well especially with the the playstation release of the game right they had the anime cutscenes, and you're like oh my goodness i want to see what's in this but then you'd get a new ending but it would be the same cutscene. <laughs> yeah maybe akira toriyama only had like 20 minutes that day <laughs> and he was like i can throw you together this clip and that'll be great and after that I- i'm gone guys but, <laughs> i mean i guess that was one of those that was a lure to me when it came out on PlayStation. This idea that there were these FMVs I would never be able to watch anywhere else. Yeah. And at that time, you know, what year was that? The PlayStation version. Uh, it was in the Final Fantasy Anthology or Chronicles? Chronicles. Chronicles. I bought it when I was in New Brunswick. Okay. Uh, we were on a family I don't know trip. when that was. <laughs> we were on a family trip. Right. And okay. I bought it in Final Fantasy IV and Corn Trigger. Or the PlayStation. 2001. Oh, also Artemis okay. also said that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I imagine that sharing videos in 2001 was probably not as easy as it is now. So no. it wasn't like 20 people had uploaded the FMV and you could just say, oh, that's what I missed. Okay. Uh, you probably had to download it or maybe find like a Napster LimeWire thing of some dude who had a copy of the FMV ripped on his computer and you were hoping that the download wouldn't stop at like 99% as it always did. Classic internet. All right. We've well established that we're all old people. Old men. (laughs) We're all old men yelling at clouds. Ah. But if we weren't, and we were talking kind of about the Chrono Trigger fandom as it is today, uh, Mike, you'd mentioned, you kind of alluded to the fact that maybe people from the generation after are, are a little bit less interested I'm going to start the general discussion on like a really sad note. Why? Do you think that the fandom will die and is it dying? I'm not an active participant in the fandom. I think it's iconic. All three of you guys are wearing chrono t-shirts. And these are, you know, designed. Oh, oh no. Okay. Well, the Twin Peaks (laughs) Chrono Trigger fanfic crossover shirt for Nick Z, but... Uh, there are still people who produce fan art, fan stuff. I work at a publisher that produces fan non mm-hmm. on books. 
Fan Gamer, I think, might have released a chrono thing. There's a French publisher that's coming out with an art book. So these classic properties that exist will never die. And there will always be people interested in them. And they will always, I think, inspire new fans. But as far as a continually existing fandom, I'm not sure Chrono Trigger has it in there. And I think in part it's because Chrono Cross was not the sequel many people wanted. Many of the principles from the original weren't part of it. And then there was no follow-up, really. The stuff that was released to continue interest in the game was, at best, just ad hoc, tangential. There was this uh, Chrono Trigger anime that happened, and people were... I mean, it's god-awful. But basically, Chrono Trigger became, you know, Chrono Trigger Monsters. It was like the Dragon Quest spinoff no one wanted, and... (laughs) It's not good, I mean, but it was something. And people in the fandom, I think, just hold on to anything. Once there's something that's chrono, they want it because it adds value to everything else, even if it subtracts value from the property in and of itself. So unless Square does something new, I don't think the fandom will survive. It will just be a classic game that has existed, and people will remember it and play it and talk about it, but no one will be active in the fandom if there's nothing to be a fan of anymore. What if they re-release it again <laughs> maybe that will do it for the apple watch i cannot wait <laughs> for that oh i think subsequent re-releases would really have to do something new i mean you said yourself nick g you've paid for it three times at this point <laughs> yes i'm sure i paid for it I, I know i bought the snes version i had the ds version and i bought the final fantasy chronicles one so yeah uh, I paid for it three times over its history as well. But that's that's plenty. That is yeah. plenty. How much of my money do I need to give to Chrono Trigger before it makes something new? I don't <laughs> know the answer to that. Just give me something else. Or we get Chrono Trigger that FF7 uh, ah. push. You release it in chapters over several years with updated graphics. Brilliant. Don't worry. We'll, do the, we'll give it the secret of mana treatment, right? Hey. That, that's better. Is it? <laughs> No, I was definitely being facetious. I begrudgingly continued to buy mana games because I just felt, oh, there's got to be something. But increasingly, it just felt detached from the original. I think it's interesting that that series continued and Chrono didn't, especially as they share sort of a a common developmental history Mm -hmm. where Chrono grew out of the seeds that Secret Mana had planted. They originally wanted to be... um, a much more expansive CD-ROM edition. I think this was the Philips CDI. Uh, What I'm remembering is the game was to be called Maru Island, and it was Mm -hmm. being designed, and then they scrapped it and then just said, all right, let's make Secret of Mana out of what we've got here. And then some of the leftovers eventually became what Chrono Trigger is with some new input by Akira Toriyama, uh, Yuji Horii, and Sakaguchi. Yeah. So it's interesting to see these are sort of like parallel games but one went on to continue releasing and re-releasing new games, and the other just sort of stayed at this SNES product. Yeah. With uh, Secret of Mana, I remember hearing the story that it was one of the games planned for the Sony-Nintendo crossover disc system. Yes, that is it. Not Philips. Yeah. There's some prototypes of that available online, but I just sort of imagined this stack of things if you had the Satellaview and you had the Super Famicom and you had the PlayStation CD edition you would just have this (laughs) tower of amazing light gray (laughs) awesomeness and play everything so it's sort of this 
future that never was of yeah. Nintendo getting very modular with its products. Yeah. And trying to build on the cartridge system, which it was it was a cool time. Sega mm. really made that happen with the the Sega CD. The Sonic and Knuckles. Uh... Yeah, there was the pass-through cart, yep. but also another addition you could add on top. 32X. The 32X. <laughs> so conceivably, you could have the 32X and then the Sega CD and then the Sonic and Knuckles pass-through cartridge and just have this massive hunk of plastic on your desk and feel like, yes, I'm the best gamer <laughs> that ever was. I've got all the pieces. But it didn't happen for North American gamers, that's for sure. I'm just thinking of like... The deep dive this year, I've gone into, into like the world of synthesizers. And if video <laughs> gaming went modular in the same way, that would be insane. The crazy thing is that Nintendo almost didn't give it up. I mean, they tried the DD with a Nintendo 64, the disc drive. Oh, yeah. And then they kind of had a few things for the GameCube, but the one that really stuck around, the one that really is still loved today is the Game Boy Player. Right. Yeah. But would you plunk down some of that hard-earned dough if they managed to get Gaspar in there? <laughs> the long lost eighth playable character didn't he appear in some sort of weird puzzle game after the fact i feel like they repurposed him for some sort of dating sim what? uh where <laughs> uh, hold on guys i know this is real i feel like this is in the chrono compendium somewhere oh, man. on it ah. it is they sort of have a laundry list of all the games it was called battle of lovers bs koi ha balance it was for the Satellaview, and there was a dating sim game where you could play or you could date gaspar i guess (laughs) (laughs) and also date johnny the race bot from chrono trigger Ah. and then a very buxom uh anime girl who may or may not have been an inspiration for another character in the chrono series (laughs) so uh yeah that's probably a game lost to time wow but there's some snapshots of it on chrono compendium so, if you ever want to date an old man in a hat uh, whose eyes you cannot see, <laughs> this is the game for you. There's so many mystical powers. Yeah. So, hold a cane and stand there and yeah. blow a bubble. <laughs> That's just the man of my dreams, guys. He, he could just, like, be around while cool stuff is happening, I guess. <laughs> he didn't produce a lot of magic. You know, I, I went really into the wormhole of, like, looking up, like, like rumors. Because my famous last words were like, trying to find, like, if anyone's, like woven Chrono Trigger into Final Fantasy. Um, like, mythology-wise. And yeah. as far as I can tell, not not real. I mean, we have a little fanfic uh, evidence there. But otherwise, not really. Uh, but it got me down to a bunch of, like, rumors and other errata. Like, the Gaspar thing, as far as I can tell, is real. Like, he was going to be a playable character. Mm-hmm. Much like Magus was going to be Guile in Chronocross. Uh, <laughs> Uh, they sort of made that happen in the DS version of Chrono Trigger. They sort of added this ending of, you know, hey, guys, that fan theory you have, it oh, might yeah. be true, and then kind of dropped it. I think it was just really fan service to say, well, maybe we should have connected these games a little bit more, but this is the best we can do, considering that we don't have the principles involved on both to really come to a conclusion about what the real glue is between these two properties. I mean, major spoilers, is that why they had that whole thing with Dalton at the end, where he's, like, in the void and he swears vengeance on Chrono, and that's why Guardia gets destroyed? Mm, maybe. Fan service? <laughs> at that point, you know, I was just done with the game. <laughs> I, I had spent six months, you know, writing this book, yep, and yep. I played the original game multiple times. I watched other people's YouTube replays. And I played the DS version of the game just to try and match up 
what might have been different between the two versions and how that was interesting. And I was playing the original Japanese version and looking at the script. So by the end of things, I had just too much of Chrono in my head and didn't even want to open the Chrono Cross can of worms, uh, <laughs> especially because I, I didn't even like the game when it came out. It was just, it just felt sad to me. Like, ah, uh, this is what I waited for. And I, I don't even think I got 5% through that game. I, didn't recognize the story when I was reading it after the fact and didn't even realize that some of the original characters were really in the game hidden. It just, it felt like something completely different. So that was my, my take on just where the franchise really went. So I guess I'm sort of in that diehard. Well, there was one great chrono game and then what, what happened? But people have taken me to task for that. People who read my book, I've gotten so many bad reviews from people who were like, I gave up on this book just like the author gave up on Chrono Cross. And I was <laughs> what? Like, I was like, okay, I get it. You're mad. I'm sorry. I didn't like it. You know, I had an opinion. I probably should have been nicer to the game and a little bit more objective, but it wasn't what I wrote. So. Oh, just, just to check in, what's the title of the book? My book is called Chrono Trigger. Not Chrono Series, not Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross. I guess people wanted me to have some faint praise for the game, but I was really looking at this game as a text and trying to see where it fit into Japanese mythology, you know, the mythology that people have of themselves in Japan, and just sort of the culture around the game. Uh, although, most interestingly, I guess, or saddest for this particular podcast, is there was a whole fan chapter that I had written, and it just didn't have a home in the book. It felt out of place. It was really more of a collection of facts. It was a listicle in chapter form, and it just got dropped. But there were some interesting fan things I discovered, cool fan products, an entire fan game. There's a full fan yes. game that people made that connects the games uh, of Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross way better than Square <laughs> ever could have. It's a fantastic labor of love. <laughs> that was something I wanted to write about a little bit more. Uh and some of the other fan products I've discovered. So, oh well. Which game was it? It's called Crimson Echoes. Okay. And I think it was playable as a ROM. They, they made yeah. it so you could play it on an emulator. <laughs> it faced some legal trouble. They had gotten almost like 98, 99% complete, something like that. Very close to the end. And Square sent a cease and desist letter. And they basically stopped development on the game. And then some versions of it got out, but they weren't the perfect version. And the first version, I think, was fairly difficult to play they may have released a patch after that in defiance of square <laughs> or maybe someone else did it out of the goodness of their hearts but i did play it it's cool <laughs> it's exactly the game that i think fans would have wanted the sequel to chrono trigger mm -hmm. that should have happened in 1996 or 97 yeah i remember uh reading that after the cease and desist uh somebody either from the same team or from a, a different fan programmer team or fan programmer took an earlier version of crimson echoes and forked it off into a different game that was trying to do the same thing called um, Flames of Eternity. Yes, I do remember that. I don't think I got a chance to sort of dig into that as much just because it felt like more of a derivative product, something that was, yeah. uh, you know, no insult meant to the people who made it. Just it was, not, uh, it was not a holistically designed product in the same way Crimson Echoes was in my understanding of it. But again, that's where I was like, I got to finish this <laughs> book so it's just like can't add another chapter man yeah people seem to regard crimson echoes pretty highly i mean my uh, famous last words from last week were is there a fan work 
that is regarded as like the sequel to Chrono Trigger, the true sequel. And yes, it's Crimson Echoes. That is it. Yeah, exactly. It makes so much sense of the game. The original game, the rules of time travel are so fast and loose. <laughs> There's a central episode that establishes, hey guys, this is how time travel works in this universe. And then the game goes on to flagrantly deny that those are the rules of the physics. So Crimson Echoes was like, okay, how can we make this work, guys? Which is the true labor of fans. How yeah. do we make this thing that people didn't give a shit about actually make sense? So fans are fantastic at making sense of the nonsensical and saying there's a logical reason for it. And sometimes, you know, it's just, oh, it was magic. But hey, at least we tried to explain it. So kudos to the team who made that game. Yeah, yeah like reading through Chrono Compendium, I was just astounded by all the theories trying to make, try, basically trying to mash Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross together to make them work. Mm-hmm. All the fan theories about like the ghost children, all the fan theories about Magus and, and Scala. And a lot of people apparently saying when I played Chrono Trigger as a kid or like when I first played it, I thought Scala's story was finished. You know, I didn't think it was a loose end. Mm-hmm. So even there, there's division and theorizing. I mean, I respect I respect that people are pouring so much of their intellectual labor into trying to fit together things that were not conceived as being contiguous, really. And I think that's maybe a very Western way of looking at Japanese storytelling, which often ignores cause and effect for how did it make you feel and what was the mm-hmm. sense overall and then I think the Western imperative is to say, well, how does A get to D? And the Japanese storyteller is saying, well, they just do. And that's <laughs> yeah. it. There's a third letter between B and C that I've never told you and I'll never reveal to you, but so be it. <laughs> and I think most recently, games like uh, Fumito Ueda's you know, Colossus trilogy, Shadow of the mm-hmm. Colossus, Eco, and Last Guardian are doing that same thing. These worlds are clearly connected aesthetically, but trying to make too much sense of how it fits together in a timeline or the geography is a labor that the creator doesn't even want to do. He wants you to feel like there's a connection and think about that connection, but not necessarily ever reify it so that it just feels cheap and hollow. So I think that people who build extensive worlds, which I absolutely love, I love world building, but when it gets too tightly packed, you end up with something like Star Wars, where now you're just making films that fill in the gaps between two other films. Well, yeah. what happened in that moment between when he left the ship and when he came back? I never saw Luke take a <laughs> at the cantina. What happened in the bathroom? And someone wants to write that story and hear the story. So I, I respect that as well. But there's a certain point where I think a lot of people realize it's probably too much and it's more fun to think about it and play with the ideas in your head than yeah. it is to actually read someone else quantifying it. And you're, you just get disappointed by the, the chronicling of everything. Yeah. What I was wondering, since you're talking about like these fans trying to piece together the, the different events, try to make things fit and talking about world building, I was wondering if, especially because you spent six months of doing hardcore research trying to figure everything out for the book. I was wondering what are kind of the biggest points of conflict within Chrono Trigger fandom that that you saw or experienced? I think it really is, should I think of this as a game that I loved or is this a series? And if it's a series, do I need to regard the sequels as canonical? I think it's where you choose to put canon because the game itself already plays loose with canon. What is the true ending of the game? 
what actually happened. Are these all the game, which has 13 or so uh, possible endings? Are they all canonically possible? And if so, are there multiple timelines? And if there's multiple timelines, then is there a Chrono Cross timeline? So I think it really comes down to how far you want to set the boundaries of canonical with Chrono Trigger. And there's plenty of people content to say Chrono Trigger happened and Chrono Cross is sort of like a guide in, a side story that's not particularly connected, but it's fun to imagine there are connections there. So I think it's really that, determining the boundaries of what is canonically true and what is not. And, you know, mentioning like the, the Chrono Trigger anime, is that a canonical side story? Are some of the little manga shorts that were published canonical as well? And of course, for the Chrono Compendium folks and people who made Crimson Echoes, they not only embraced the entire canon, but they chose to expand it and create their own holistic canon. So it really comes down to, I think, what people are willing to embrace as true for the property and what is more gilding the lily, I guess. I will say this for Chrono Cross. I enjoyed it a lot, but not for any of the reasons that I enjoyed Chrono Trigger. Hmm. Once I like came to grips with the fact that it wasn't Chrono Trigger... Then I like played it for itself and it was like, it was good. I enjoyed it. I think it's telling that Square has not re-released that game once. Yeah. Chrono Trigger has had possibly anywhere between six to ten re-releases, depending on how you want to count them and the different platforms, but multiple re-releases. Because you and I have bought it multiple times, Nick G, but how many yeah. times has Chrono Cross been released? I think maybe the original release and possibly as a PlayStation Classic some years later but with no new bells and whistles. It was actually more of a reduced budget package because that's what the PlayStation classics were, right? Generally a pared down packaging, just a disc and a cover. Didn't even include the instruction manual, I think. <laughs> um, but it, it, it never had a resurgence. Square hasn't done anything with it. Mm. Maybe it's the format as well. It's a larger file. It might be harder to port. Yeah. But it's just, it's not there in the way that other games have been re-released. So... They themselves are not embracing its existence. So why should many fans? Yeah, as we were saying, there exists a fandom in order for it to really grow. For all those fans who are chrono-starved, <laughs> they need more content. So I think it's pretty implicit that like people want another game. I think that's pretty clear. And coming at it from a series perspective, a la Final Fantasy, like another chrono-blank game, chrono-break, People are probably gun-shy about that now, both fans and, like, Square. Based on Chrono Cross, as you said, has not been re-released. <laughs> not a lot of attention paid. There's no marketing of the Chrono series at all. <laughs> right? It's Chrono Trigger and Co. Yeah. And so that, that basically means it's going to be Chrono Trigger 2 <laughs> to make something else. We've now had, like, a couple decades of putting Chrono Trigger, well, people of our generation, of our age of putting it on the highest pedestal possible we call the people who produced it the dream team and, and talk wait about a second how, wait uh, a second i don't think what? we call them that they called themselves that the game what? called them that they called themselves the dream team these are three dudes who came to the u.s once upon a time to study computer graphics and they got drunk and they probably said you know we are the dream team <laughs> I, I could imagine three drunk dudes drinking whiskey saying, we are totally the dream team. We're going to make the best game ever. And they poured their hearts into it. And this is what they did. But we don't call them. That. We, we respectfully acknowledge that they call themselves that. 
I, I have not met anyone who's disagreed. How about that? I don't disagree. I'm just saying where the name came from. Let's yeah, <laughs> Okay. Yeah. That, that's fair. Yeah. It is a bit of a a bit of a risk calling yourself a dream team, but in this case I would say it paid off for it. It paid off. Anyway, is there like too much praise or hype or expectation around Chrono Trigger that, that they never would want to try and make another game? I don't know. I mean these are the people who are in Final Fantasy fifteen, sixteen at this point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the conclusion I reach in my book, spoiler alert, is lightning struck the team only once. And that was it. These three guys had a project. They put their heads together and they made this thing. And then after that, they didn't want to do it again because they felt like they achieved their, their goal. Mm-hmm. And then anything after that that didn't include them was doomed to be a pale imitation of it or put a stamp on it that the fans didn't actually want to be there. So Chrono Cross could have very well been released as a completely different game without the Chrono branding. And it might have had a modest following, but it had very big shoes to fill with Chrono Trigger. And I think people were going to measure it against it and how well it fit into the series. So I I think that people were, on the one hand, ready to give it high praise, but on the other hand, ready to pan it. (laughs) So it had unfair expectations from the start. It could have been a completely forgettable PlayStation 2 era JRPG that people fondly remember now. Uh, I could probably think of, I actually, I can't think of any names, but if we go on Wikipedia, <laughs> I'm sure there's a list of forgotten JRPGs of the you know 2000s that people remember as a very competent game that they liked to play that just didn't pan out. So mm-hmm. I think that's kind of where I am with the, with the Chrono series. These three guys, they had their idea. They made it happen. They did a swell job, but... That was the project, and it wasn't envisioned as something to continue over time. Yeah. I mean, from from what I remember from your book and what I was reading elsewhere, specifically about the Dream Team, um, part of the project was to make a game that showcased video games' power to tell stories, because up to that point, that wasn't really something that was done. Final Fantasy games kind of touched on it, Dragon Quest games kind of touched on it, but they wanted to like make a game that told a story in sort of a new way. And like you said, they felt like they accomplished that once they finished Chrono Trigger. And I feel like the reason maybe why Chrono Cross didn't really succeed was because it was too late. You know, like everybody else saw the success of Chrono Trigger and games take a few years to make. So they saw the success of the game and then thought, well, where's our RPG that's telling a great story? You know, we've got to get in on this. So then by the time Chrono Cross came out, what was once a very niche kind of underserviced genre, the JRPG, was was just kind of overrun with all sorts of games and is way harder to stand out than it was when you were Chrono Trigger. Absolutely. And the graphics were a state of the art, mm-hmm. but I wonder how many people will fondly remember that style of polygon-based graphics in the future. Now, there's a lot of nostalgia now for, you know, 8-bit and 16-bit mm-hmm. characters, but they have a reproducibility to them. They're iconic. They're things that you can make art out of. Mm-hmm. And 3D models, you know, does anyone really fondly remember Final Fantasy VII's character designs in-game? <laughs> you know, I, I'm not yeah. being too harsh no, on the no. game, but I don't know that there are many developers now who are using that aesthetic to inform their current art and developing. If so, it's with irony and not necessarily with nostalgia. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm missing some great games that were produced in the style of, you know, a, a Spyro the Dragon, the first, you know, something like that. Yeah. 
in Super Mario Odyssey, you can buy a bunch of costumes from Mario. And one is the Mario 64 costume, where if you put on the hat and the clothing, his face turns into the, you know, sort of blocky polygon. Yeah. So it's sort of a fan treat. And you can enter a room <laughs> that's been rendered to look like it was on the N64. <sighs> I think it's charming, but it's telling that there's no entire game, I think, developed like that because it past the threshold i think of believability and now it just looks clumsily done more than you know a true loving tribute i think you'd have to be very deliberate to do that so chrono cross you know i don't think that any of the art of that game is necessarily something that people love the character designs there were so many characters in that game i think Uh, think there was a chrono trigger and thought people were probably complaining about how few characters there were in chrono trigger so let's go in the opposite direction it was unmanageable so i mean they threw in an alien at one point like a gray alien it's like dude you guys ran out of ideas and just were throwing in i'm sorry we got a mushroom guy we got a luchador there's a dog who could fling his poop at enemies yeah 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 it's like his litter i don't know it happened (laughs) and frustratingly you cannot collect all the characters in one run through no you cannot and you can't have them all in a team anyway even if you collected them right no i didn't get through an entire run but you can't have the (laughs) the entire roster available to choose from you have to make hard choices along the way and decide who's coming and who's staying Mm -hmm. and i think that was very much against the spirit of the original chrono trigger which was collect them all, and then <laughs> see how they interact with each other through their yeah. combined attacks. So in Chrono Cross, when you were deliberately excluding character combinations that were possible, something was fundamentally missing. That was a joy of the original. Like, well, when you are no longer required to have Chrono in your party, and you could see, what do these three characters do when you put them in a danger zone and they combine their powers? I think people like to see that stuff happen. And Chrono Cross sort of violated that from a gameplay perspective yeah okay i'm gonna sneak in here and ask a question that's a little bit different so you know chrono trigger is great chrono cross very different (laughs) and you were just mentioning that you now have this new mechanic when you remove chrono from the game and there were a lot of moments like that in chrono trigger there are a lot of innovations in that game and a lot of moments where they push the envelope for the limits of the, the system talking a little bit not about chrono trigger fandom but kind of how it impacted the jrpg landscape i don't know if you're big into jrpgs today but like what happened there because we had these innovations in chrono trigger and they don't seem to have carried over into jrpgs of later years it's like we just forgot some cool things that we learned and just didn't do that (laughs) (laughs) yeah i love jrpgs as a concept but i probably stopped actively playing them in the mid 2000s Okay. I follow them. I like to see what's out there. But in terms of specific innovations, I don't know. I think the genre is just a little stale. And maybe there are just only so many other types of genres that are codified. You know, well, maybe I'll add puzzle elements or maybe I'll add action elements. So Chrono mm-hmm. was innovative in some ways because it was pushing the boundaries of graphics. It was pushing the boundaries of what the system could do. And the difference between it and say secret of mana in terms of technology and capabilities was probably this really steep curve but then soon the curve just got steeper and steeper well maybe that's not the right shape but (laughs) i'm not certain that games really had much more to add when they were committed to 
reproducing a certain genre. You know, the romance novel is a genre that has persisted for generations. <laughs> but are the Harlequin classics really adding new things that books of the 50s didn't have? You can make them racier. You can add a little bit of punch. But the mechanics are there. So it's become a genre. And probably by the time Chrono Trigger came out, it was just sealing itself up as a genre. But that's me just spitballing here. There are many more qualified students of JRPGs than me. Regarding the romance novels, uh, one modern innovation. <laughs> Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. Yes. I, <laughs> I am a Chuck Tingle fan. I have read some of the Tinglers. But, but the innovation he provided was really mashup and absurdity. And after yeah. you reach the point of parody, can you really improve on it? Once a thing has become established, the next thing to do is parody it. And then once it's been parodied, the genre is effectively dead. There's not much you can do once it's become a parody of itself. So I'm sure there's some goofy JRPGs out there that make fun of the conventions of the game. But mm -hmm. once it's reached that status, the genre is, is sort of closed in its own way. And maybe things that use elements of it shouldn't be considered JRPGs anymore. Maybe they're just games that borrowed from it. And I don't know. I mean, maybe we're over-genrefied or maybe under-genrefied. I don't know. Yeah. I'll throw my lot in here and say art should progress, obviously. Mm -hmm. That's like the point of it, right? To challenge. Challenge what's going on. But as a self-avowed fan of JRPGs, I'm sort of fine with them being kind of the same as each other <laughs> personally maybe i haven't played enough to like sour myself on them but as long as the, <laughs> as long as the narrative's different i'm kind of fine with it but i don't think there's anything wrong with that yeah. either no because it's an established success model yeah you don't always need to reinvent the wheel but <laughs> when the wheel store only sells the same type of wheel you say well maybe you could try something else i might always go for the thing i love yeah but what are you doing to enhance your product line <laughs> And you look at the things that, you know, exist and are classics and unchangeable. I mean, it's anything. A fast food restaurant has items that have been on the menu for decades. Certain types of genres of literature have existed for decades. They're still making yeah. Marvel movies, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> and no one's complaining because there's a certain set of person who says, I want to keep getting more of this because I love it. Just mm -hmm. switch it up a little bit to make it interesting. And there's another set of, of person who says, well... Just give me something completely new, something I've never seen before. And then many people are somewhere you know, in that spectrum of craving novelty always and craving consistency always. Yeah. You'd mentioned that there was a whole chapter that you didn't get to include in the book. And you also mentioned there are people that'll just keep eating up more of the same stuff and people who love, you know, it's got to be new, new all the time. And so as when you mentioned that earlier, my brain was like, oh, what kind of new stuff? What kind of new fan stuff am I not seeing as a, as a North American fan? What are some of the things that didn't make it into that chapter of the book that talked about the fandom that you would have liked to have brought up? Like you, you said there were like some fan mm -hmm. products that, that you didn't get to mention. And, and I'm, I'm curious. It's porn. Porn <laughs> is the answer. It's porn. Okay. It's Yaoi. I mean, it's, it's not hardcore, though there's some elements of, you know, in-your-face sexuality to this art. It's just one way of fans engaging with the property and trying to make sense of it in their own way, trying to make some jokes, trying to explore relationships of characters that maybe they discovered in the game and thought could have used some exploring. So, you know, I'm a gay man. I think everybody's gay. Honestly, I look, I read a book and I'm like, they're totally gay. <laughs> and you just want to, people want to see themselves in the stories that they read. And that's why 
there's been a huge push and acceptance for diversity in stories because people recognize that when you read a story or see a, a narrative that has someone who's like you in it, you connect to it so deeply. Not that you're incapable of connecting to similar narratives, but it's so great to see yourself in something. So in Chrono Trigger, there's a character named Frog who is a knight who looks up to uh, an older knight. And this is sort of a classical Greek-style mentor relationship. Mm-hmm. Yep. Women are not part of their narrative. There's no love. It's just these two guys who have a sense of duty and they want to hang out all the time. And when the elder knight dies, young Frog, the squire, is just heartbroken his entire life. And yes, in a two-dimensional game where the writing has to pull a lot of weight, it's easy to say, look, we just want to underscore the emotional impact here. But as a person reading it, you think, well, why does he care so much about this character? So I was very tempted to read this as a gay love story that the game really couldn't say due to existing, you know, social conventions at the time. So that relationship uh, was really explored by a Yaoi artist named Mik Mikako. She's on Twitter. I bought all of her stock of doujinshi, her yaoi uh, stories, which star Magus, the game's you know, antagonist turned hero, mm-hmm. and Frog, who turns back into a human in these stories. So they're these two male characters that really hew closely to the yaoi conventions of having the seme, the kind of the top, and the uke, the bottom characters. And she wrote a whole bunch of these fan books about their love stories, and they're full of jokes and just. One that I have right in front of me is like, how is Magus going to propose to Frog? And all the Chrono Trigger characters imagine a scenario where they're going to get married, guys. I mean, it's the height of fan fiction, but this Mick Mikako really spent a lot of time on this. She's drawn manga. She's printed these books at cost to herself and sold them at places like Kamaket and other doujinshi fan places. So... It was fantastic to see the subculture of Chrono there. And, you know, I knew that there was this out there, but just to see myself in this other person's stories, like I interpreted the story this way. They're gay lovers. She interpreted it this way. This is fantastic. I totally wanted to write about that. And I bought these from her. She sent them from Japan. I paid with iTunes money because I think that was the best Whoa. way to get paid because PayPal just doesn't really happen in Japan. So I really wanted to write about it and sort of validate her side of the fan experience but it just didn't make it and you know i'm sad about that i don't regret cutting that chapter uh because again it could have been a listicle and a lot of things that i talked about were things you could glean just from googling around so it was probably the weakest of the chapters but i found that to be one of the coolest fan engagements fans making products that were also narratives and that really showed their perspective on it she didn't care about making it fit with the property she just wanted to put her own spin on it and say i love these stories and i want to tell them to you so sort of an isn't it neat alternate universe and then there's one where everybody goes bald uh i don't know what that (laughs) yaoi is all about but everybody loses their hair so that's something (laughs) i bought it i i own it i don't know what to do with these things guys i've got chrono porn I'm keeping them, obviously. I collect this type of stuff, but I would love a a library to take them at some point. Maybe like the strong archive of play that has all these game mags and stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know that anyone in the U.S. is really 
paying much attention to this as a as a genre of of game publication but you know there's a book in this (laughs) i'm probably not gonna write it but there's a book in this (laughs) while you were researching the book specifically the the fan part did you come across anything specifically japanese that was like unique or interesting or different from how the fandom was expressed in north america the doujinshi are probably it because it's just such a genre that does not exist here right. fan fiction does exist but it's very textual and this was engaging with the art in a way that i think north american fans don't really do mm. creating a new graphic story but on the north american side one thing that really did surprise me was that i ended up reconnecting with an old college friend who was trying to kickstart a game that was directly inspired by Chrono Trigger. And it was a 16-bit style game involving time travel, but set in the real world. And he had some idea of mechanics he wanted to incorporate. It never got off the ground, but I really wanted to just understand how it had affected him and how he put so much of his time and life into building this thing that he wanted to succeed. And ultimately, the project didn't come through and... You know, it was disappointing as well because that felt like, well, this isn't something that I want to write a chapter about. I want to talk about my friend and how this person from a parallel life to me was inspired by the game enough to make a work you know, that involved it. I wrote a book on Chrono Trigger. He was inspired by it to make a game like it. But the fact that the project didn't succeed felt like it was disappointing to him and probably didn't want to be preserved in, in a book forever. So... Mm-hmm. It was cool to see these two different stories happen. Someone who was having moderate success making these little fan art books and someone who put a lot of time into building a digital game that he wanted to keep publishing over time and it didn't happen. So it was a very personal chapter in that way, but it just didn't really gel together. But other than that, I don't think there's many, again, specific Japanese things because Square hasn't done much with the property. Mm -hmm. There weren't many toys with Final Fantasy, you could buy the uh, Cactuar, Cactrot little <laughs> characters. You could buy a Chocobo, a Moogle. These things are properties that exist outside of the game. You could go to you know, huh. one of the uh, uh, capsule vending machines in Japan, and it's plausible to find you know, during a certain promotion. Yeah. Uh, a little Moogle strap for your cell phone or something like that. It became such a pervasive property that people who aren't even fans of the game recognize the characters in the same way that someone who's never seen The Simpsons would recognize Homer or recognize Mickey Mouse never having seen, you know, a Mickey Mouse cartoon, that that kind of thing. So Chrono was not anything close to that. So what you're saying is that the reason Chrono Trigger didn't catch on uh, as well as Final Fantasy is because it didn't have any cute character, cute little mascot character. Well, it did, though. It's got lots. Okay, (laughs) it it does, and they were the disastrous inspiration for the Chrono Trigger anime. Right, right. The monsters. But I think it was that they were so similar to what Dragon Quest was already doing in terms of design. Mm. It was all, you know, Akira Toriyama's monster designs. They very well could have found a way. Once they became Square Enix, I I find it very hard to believe they didn't integrate those Chrono monsters into the Dragon Quest mythology. (laughs) Because they fit right in. It's just, let's add these guys into the mix. But there wasn't a lot of branded property, and I think that was part of it. People didn't latch Mm -hmm. on to them. But they totally could have sold some of those Chrono Trigger monsters as stuffed animals or something cute. It just... I don't think that was the vision to create a, a series and a franchise. It was to create a game. Yeah. 
And then the Chrono Cross was the, the result of that. Well, maybe we should see if there's something still here. But by that time, the fire hadn't been stoked in a long time, and that's what they were left with. If you can get your hands on an Emperor Pilaf toy, <laughs> then you, you kind of have a blue one. <laughs> yes. That's probably part of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly stamped with Toriyama's aesthetic. Yeah. It surprises me that they didn't do more with that art to really mm-hmm. capitalize on it. There wasn't even, I don't think there was even a Chrono Trigger art book. There were plenty of fan guides out. Oh, and I had the library uh, where I work. They bought every single fan guide for Chrono Trigger from Japan. <laughs> we special ordered them from used bookstores. I bought wow. them at the library. I cataloged them all. So now the University wow. of Pennsylvania wow. Libraries has every single Japanese Chrono Trigger guide from the very first one to the Ultimania guide. Because it was, it was my research. Awesome. Uh, so <laughs> Incredible. Nice. But those were game-centric. They were tied to releases of games. They were not independently mm-hmm. conceived as, hey, that game you love, here's a collection of all the stuff that you missed. So <laughs> I think Square was really on a one-track mind with this game. Let's release it at different times and release some co-promotional things, but that's pretty much it. There's no independent body of Chrono merchandise that I'm aware of that is not fan-made. Mm. I'm like looking now and it's pretty. <laughs> There's a great artist um, named Django Snow who makes a lot of cool t-shirts. He also recently did the art for the re-release of Mega Man 2 and maybe for Mega Man X, uh, which, yeah, I think I Am 8-Bit released them as like limited edition cartridges. He may have done the package design, but he makes a lot of fan t-shirts. and I'm certain there's got to be a chrono. A chrono shirt in his mix so there are people like him fans who are committed to making stuff content things you can wear and use but square itself is you know square enix at this point has not really done much with the property yeah well even like even though there hasn't been any sort of rumbling about a new game since i guess chrono break was announced what like in the early 2000s right the copyright lapsed in 2003 okay was the game ever announced or was it just a registered copyright and people yeah. saw it and said, oh my God, it's happening. And then it lapsed, right? I do remember reading on uh, Chrono Compendium that there was an interview with somebody involved with uh, with Cross and then with Chrono Break. And it sounded like the basic idea was that it would have been character-wise at least, like a Chrono Trigger 2 where like the planets or Belsazar or somebody basically like calls on the old Chrono Trigger crew and says... A bunch of terrible beings are trying to destroy the timeline and, you know, go to these different time zones to, like, figure it out kind of thing. That was the idea. So it kind of would have been a Chrono Trigger 2 if it had happened, maybe? Here's the short version from Wikipedia of just, like, what happened. Mm. Okay. So Chrono Break, like the brake on a car, and Chrono <laughs> Break, right. like, are the names of two trademarks owned by Square Co. The first applied in Japan on November 5th, 2001. The second registered in the United States on December 5th of the same year. The registrations were preceded by a press report in which Hironobu Sakaguchi mentioned that the Chrono Cross team was interested in developing a new game of the Chrono series and that script and story ideas were being considered. However, Square did not publish further news and the American trademark Chrono Break was eventually dropped on November 13th, 2003. So they still have the Japanese one. (laughs) And it's worth mentioning that in Japanese the word for break and break are the same word. So hmm. when they brought it to North America, they were like, oh, shit. 
we probably have to get both of these just in case someone gets the other one. It's sort of like someone hedging their bets with websites. You know, yeah. Google yeah. probably owns like Google.com ah. as well just to get people in the right place. Yeah. yeah. You're just trying to make sure people don't mess it up. So it's one of those things where North Americans probably speculated about it much more than the Japanese. What could it possibly mean? <laughs> Is it break as in broken or break as in time has halted? So I'm sure there were fan theories about what game it would have been. And the Japanese were like, yeah, probably both or either. Who cares? It's the same word. Well, like that in itself, like just the the sparsity of information about Chrono Break, but still all the, the, the fandom uh, kerfuffle about it, I guess, really suggests to me that like part of what kept the fandom going and maybe still keeps it going is the sort of laundry list of abiding mysteries in the series, you know, like what is Lavos really? What happened to Scala? What would Chrono Break have been if it had ever been a game? And, you know, like as somebody who's done extensive research on the fandom and ex- extensive research on the game, how do you see mystery factoring into the fandom? Well, I think that games like Crimson Echoes are solutions in action, right? These are people mm-hmm. trying to solve the mysteries. And I think it really comes down to this glimmer of hope that maybe one day someone will answer these questions that we have in a way that's official. Yeah. And, you know, again, to use a maybe unfair parallel, something with Star Wars, nothing's a mystery anymore. It's almost like, well, just add to this growing body. Mm -hmm. It's so expansive that it doesn't feel mysterious. And I do think that Fumito Ueda's, you know, uh, Eco Trilogy, Last Guardian, Shadow of the Colossus, probably captures the best of that from Japanese gaming, as far as I'm aware of. of, I've given you properties that exist in a place. I want you to encourage the mystery. I'm aware that there is a mystery, but I'm never going to tell you what the answer is. (laughs) But in terms of Chrono Trigger, it was never so holistically designed. It was pieces, fragmentary pieces. And Twin Peaks is probably another. Having had a revival, how do you feel about that? I'm just wondering about what would happen if there's a chrono revival. I'm I'm doing air quotes. You can't see them. But whatever that's supposed to mean, if they bring it back, as people like to say, what was the reaction to Twin Peaks? Were were people into it? Or were they like, this didn't answer anything, but I love it. Or this didn't answer anything, and I hate it. It is, or rather it was, surprisingly like the reaction to Chrono Cross. Divisive? Very divisive. Some people loved it because they saw it as like a continuation of the series as if it were made today. Some people hated it because it didn't have like the the more sort of soap opera sort of style mm. that the original had. And some people were just like, it's more Twin Peaks. This is this is good. That's plenty for me. Like that's yeah. that's what I wanted. And I think all those points are valid because with yeah. Trigger and Cross, if they had made a 16-bit RPG in... What year was Chrono Cross released? 99. Was it 99? Okay. Yeah. If they had made oh. that same game after four years of technological progress, if they had mm-hmm. released something that looked like it, I think fans would have been disappointed. Why didn't you do more to make this good? Yeah. In the same way that if you look at the difference between Final Fantasy 4 and 6... There's a noticeable graphic upgrade. Yeah. And the characters are in their way no longer compatible, right? The one tile high characters are replaced <laughs> by two tile high characters. And they don't fit in the same aesthetic. But it is telling mm-hmm. that when Square later created new Final Fantasy properties like the um, Record Keeper, 
which basically okay. it's a mobile game, but they threw in every character from every era and they <laughs> put them in the 16 bit style of Final Fantasy VI. Like that's where Square huh. finally crystallized what does a Final Fantasy character look like in its most basic form. And they keep that aesthetic. Yeah. There aren't many of the Final Fantasy VII versions of Final Fantasy IV characters, you know? Mm-hmm. They decided at a certain point, here's what it's all going to look like. So there's that element of, well, you had to improve on the graphics with Chrono Cross, but by improving on it, you automatically turned off people who wanted the same thing that they loved. So, yeah. I don't know, sophomore slump is a, is a term because it's, it's hard to live up to a masterpiece property. Yeah. Just hearing about Record Keeper, though, it's it's interesting because as a, somebody growing up in the 90s uh, with a computer and internet access, I tooled around a lot with uh, RPG Maker, and it was pretty common for people to make sprite sheets of like PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2 uh, JRPG characters in like the 16-bit style. So it's just kind of interesting. I, I know for like the time when Record Keepers was made, they probably had to do it for uh, technical reasons but like it's interesting that oh no, no. It officially it was just out uh maybe a year okay. or two ago okay. it's, it's a mobile wow. game but yeah. they decided that in order to make it i think manageable and to unify the aesthetics of all these games yeah they would pick yeah. the flagship aesthetic which ended up being final fantasy 6 sprite style so you can play as final fantasy 10 characters in that style and they all <laughs> intermingle in this world and that's that's a very fan thing to do oh yeah so i was thinking of sure. the you know, the fan shrines, as they used to call them back in the days of Angel Fire and GeoCities. Mm-hmm, People yeah. would make their own, I think, fan sprites and populate yeah. little worlds. And there was, uh, there was this, I don't remember the name of it, but it lives on in many fans' memories as an entire rebuilt world you could play in, a Final Fantasy tribute world. Wow. It was just this, this era of people really using what what existing property was out there and creating their own fan lore around it, which was often making Mm -hmm. fake sprites and coming up with myths. Like, did you know you can play as this character in Final Fantasy VI? I was convinced (laughs) you could play as as General Leo and there's a way you can get him. Or, you know, all these hacks that existed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that era of gaming is kind of gone now Mm -hmm. because everything is open. Someone has cracked the code to a game. Someone's explored the secrets. Now it's about optimizing and, I think, tool-assisted playing more than it yep. is finding the secrets in the code. So now that those tools are more democratized, it's like, uh, remember when albums had hidden tracks? There's <laughs> yeah. no hiding from your computer analyzing <laughs> you know, what files are on a disk. It's just, mm-hmm. the mysteries are probably there, but they're not in the same, I think, intriguing way that they were for the layperson once upon a time of, Maybe if I just do it this, it will break it. And there was no way of saying it was right or wrong. So I really did enjoy that era of hunting for secrets on fan <laughs> websites and you know seeing what people had designed. It's a time that I don't think can be reproduced, even with fanfic and arts and forums like Reddit. It's just not quite the same because it doesn't have that built-in mystery of, well, there's no way to find it out because we don't have the technology to I was convinced you could play as Luigi in Mario 64. Yes, me too. <laughs> and I'm sure there was footage of that too. Someone oh, yes. it up. And it was believable, right? It yeah. was believable yeah. because there was no way to disprove it. And now <laughs> disprovability is so high. And there's such a connected community of people ready to call bullshit on something that it, it happens. Someone will say that's a lie. But 
Once upon a time, they were the myths that occupied the letters to the editor pages in GamePro. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Maybe like little Daniel, age eight from Why I'm Missing is like, I know it. I totally played as the Esper Madwin in Final Fantasy VI. If you just get this item and give it to this guy. And you you try it. You've oh, yeah. read little oh, Daniel's yeah. letter and you're like, that is so fake. But let me just see if that works. <laughs> it, was, it was a fun time, I think, to, to buy into bullshit and think, well, maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe the developers gave us that little Easter egg. And now Easter eggs are planned things that developers mm. want you to find. It's it's a different time for developing. Yeah. This might be a little sacrilegious. <laughs> but I'm curious. How dare you, sir? The very thought. Take a, take a drink as you're, as you're about to say. <laughs> Spit it out! <laughs> I'm curious, as somebody who's sort of like immersed themselves, even, you know, if it was just for six months that's way more than i've immersed myself in the chrono trigger fandom (laughs) but as somebody who's immersed themselves in the chrono trigger fandom do you think that like the reason why people our age regard chrono trigger so highly aside from you know being a pretty good game was because he is so ready to spit (laughs) because of when it (laughs) when it came out like if chrono trigger had never come out in the 90s and it came out yesterday with you know appropriate graphics like Breath of the Wild, Mario Odyssey style graphics, that quality of graphics, but the story was identical and the mechanics were identical, would it be as popular or would it just be like, oh, there's this Chrono Trigger game. It's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> he long finished that beverage. Good job, though. I was actually going to ask the same question. So, Ooh, hey. Yeah. Ooh. I don't think that's sacrilegious. I think that's just economics. There were just so few good games then. When you think of the the amount of games that existed for the SNES, probably there were more for the Famicom in Japan. So it did yeah. have to stand out as a good JRPG already mm-hmm. to compete with the marketplace in Japan. But in the US, it was a new genre. You know, Historically, yeah. the JRPG was seen as something Americans would not play, too hard for them, mm-hmm. boring, not masculine enough. <laughs> so the marketing behind you know final fantasy 6 for instance in the us was completely out of tone with what the original game was there people were just trying to sell jrpgs as this thing like you know be a man fight some monsters but then the game is like let's go to the opera so it's totally not the tone that they thought north americans would play yeah but that was the history of marketing here the the bad box art was always designed to emphasize G.I. Joe toughness more than it was like, well, it's actually a lot cuter than that and goofy. So there was already this embedded set of prejudices against the genre that existed. So many just didn't make it here. And some of the ones that did were not particularly great. There was one JRPG that I guess you can call it a JRPG. I will. Arcana. I don't know what the original Japanese title was, but basically you play as a series of tarot card-like characters. It was sort of a Mm. card-collecting game, I think. I rented it probably 20 times from Blockbuster, never got past what I would generously call the first level. Uh, It (laughs) it wasn't a game I was good at. I sucked at this game, but I loved it. I loved the art and aesthetics, but it wasn't fun. Mm. It wasn't a game that I wanted to buy, though probably I should have bought it if I had rented it 20 (laughs) times from Blockbuster. Uh, But there was just so little in the market that people who loved it had to get it. And those <laughs> who did were just going to say, it's awesome because this is, this is all there is in this genre, this set of maybe 10 to 15 titles that are available. And they were all very expensive. 
So, yeah. you know, you were investing. Chrono Trigger was $80 at the time it debuted. That was expensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, Earthbound was also a pricey game, but they really oversold it with the strategy <laughs> guide. And it did very poorly on the shelves. It did not yeah. sell well, and I think a friend of mine bought it as a discount item when they <laughs> couldn't move the stock. But Chrono was a gamble. Ted Woolsey, the translator of the game, was, I think, a little worried about that. That, is this game going to sell? Because it's so expensive. Will people think this is worth their money? And I don't know what the price was in Canada. I know it's always slightly higher in Canada, but 85? 90, maybe? 90? It might have hit 100. I don't know. And probably in some places when it was, you know, less scrupulous toy stores, uh, yeah. it went up there. So I think there was a prestige to it. Everyone knew Square was the company that made the best RPGs. Mm-hmm. So there was already that brand association. And then there was the, holy <laughs> 80 bucks, this has got to be good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's that element of that if they're selling it to us at this price, this has got to have something special. I don't really remember the marketing of the game. Um, I think I may have tracked down the commercial, but I don't remember how it was sold to Americans or how I was even aware of it. Probably through game magazines yeah, where I saw screenshots and thought, I got to have this game. But for the wider audience of people who were learning what JRPGs were, I'm not sure what it was that hooked them. But totally for Final Fantasy VI... There was like a wisecracking Moogle, you know, claymation Moogle or dude in a costume who was like Danny DeVito chomping on a stogie. Like, yeah, you want to kill some monsters, use guys. And then that was the commercial. So I don't think Chrono was anything like that, but it stood out for being different than the other types of games, platformers that most Americans might encounter at that time. Fighting games being a huge genre at the time, too. So now that the JRPG is a much more expansive and wider genre that's accepted as uh, a valid genre i think it would be harder to stand out today even if it had innovative mechanics i'm trying to look up ads right now for for chrono trigger but even before i started looking there was one that i remembered and i found and it was just it was a very simple thing it just had like a a bunch of like little square sized kind of like instagram screenshots from the game with a bunch of dotted lines going around and starts with like you are here and then it's like showing you going around the different places that you end up in the game it's supposed to be like oh it's a time travel game but like that draws you in because you're drawn into what happens next how do all these points connect and then there's some other ad copy and you're seeing all those graphics in motion which would have stood out to you as wow this looks really good having compared it to other games that are on this platform and i think now it's harder to stand out visually. I mean, we're getting to the point where people are debating whether the frame rate is better in one <laughs> platform or another. It's oh. a perhaps a valid debate. It's one that disinterests me immensely. <laughs> but it's something people really do care about. Fine, kudos to you for loving that and knowing how to spot the differences. But it's, it's a far smaller window. The gap is much lower than it was when you compared what Chrono Trigger was versus, I don't know, what was a comparable game in 1996? You know, uh... Mario is missing SNES. I don't know. Something that was a, a shitty game that the <laughs> graphics were not cared about. There was a much larger gap, I think, of skill yeah. available. And now we have such a dedicated industry and people really do care about making these things look polished and cinematic. It's harder to stand out for graphics. You almost accept that there's a bare minimum that must be there in order to make a game look good enough. And if you deviate from it, you better damn well have a reason why you do. So... That's just the state of the industry. It's gotten so good that it's hard to tell how good something might be when it doesn't live up to the other specs that we 
we expect from it. One thing that I find super interesting that I've noticed is that like big video game titles, new, have always kind of been $80. <laughs> like they still are now. I feel like that's mostly a Nintendo thing, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, there's something to be said for inflation. Yeah. I haven't performed those calculations, but I don't think that's an unreasonable price. But there's so many budget games, too, right? I, yeah, yeah. I recently got, you know, as a gift, the latest South Park RPG. I think those games are great. I'm a huge South Park fan, and I think they're not necessarily innovative, but they've done something fun with the JRPG genre to make mm-hmm. it uniquely American and also parodic. So I enjoy that, but I think that one was maybe like forty nine ninety nine. Maybe 50, 60 bucks. But we have now gotten to the point where the industry can chunk tiered products. You can sell a Steam game that's 10 bucks. You can get a $20 game, a $30 game, and an $80, $90 deluxe package with all the that you could possibly want, including <laughs> DLC and bonus items and swag. So the, the market has diversified in a way that was almost unfeasible and unheard of in, in 1995. When Earthbound mm-hmm. had that crazy deluxe package, I don't think retailers knew what to do with it because it was too big for the shelves. And gamers didn't know what it was. It looked like an oversized novelty birthday card. You know, it's like, it's <laughs> is this a gigantic cartridge in here? I don't know what to expect. Does it need its own system to play? <laughs> Can I play this thing? So the market has changed. The economy has changed. Expectations of gamers have changed. And... Mm-hmm. All for the better. This is the, none of these are bad things. I don't want to wax nostalgic about yeah. the, the industry and market was back then. But a game like Chrono Trigger would not stand out today based on the sheer mechanics alone. Yeah, It would have to bring something very unique, a unique style. I mean, the aesthetic was there, I think, because that was new for Americans to really see an anime-styled game. When anime was becoming a thing, 1995 yes. was the beginning of Toonami on Cartoon Network. Americans were ready to embrace Japan. And Chrono Trigger was super Japanese. And that's (laughs) one of the, you know, running theses of my books is that this game is super Japanese. And there's parts of Japanese culture you can easily see through it. And there's parts that are hidden behind maybe two other barriers of translation. So that's what fascinated me the most about the game. Less about the development history because eh, I'm sure the history was there. It's hard to track down some of these original people and get them to remember. I mean, the game was so long ago that people forget. Ted Woolsey, who was so generous with his time, he forgot more about the game than I'll ever know. But <laughs> there's sort of a barrier to being a historian of video games, I think. Mm-hmm. But time is the biggest barrier of them all. Yeah. It doesn't exactly sync up perfectly, but uh, I, I'm sure Chrono Trigger was still on the shelves a year later. Uh, in 1996, apparently it came out in March of 1995, um, but September 13th, 1996 is when Dragon Ball Z premiered in the U.S. So that probably booted the uh, the sales numbers up quite a bit when people saw Dragon Ball Z and then saw the box art. Yeah, I don't know what the uh, when the SNES was finally, I don't even know what the right term is. I mean, when they stopped production, essentially, which is... They kept some elements in production for a long time because you could contact Nintendo and get replacement parts when they failed. But when the system stopped being for sale and then when it really left retailer stores, but then there was still the secondhand market. So, you know, the Funko Land was becoming a thing and used copies of games were out there and video rental places were still probably selling these products or, you know, at least had them on shelves. So 
probably the late 90s when the SNES was finally done as a system that had viable resale value. And I'm sure Chrono occupied that space of, hey, it's available, get it. There's units. It's a game you missed last year. Play it this yep. year. You know, yeah. I mean, the economy hasn't changed that much. And you're right. The uh, the growth of anime as a as a concept and as a product probably inspired people to say, "I love this art, and that looks like Dragon Ball, and I want it." <laughs> yeah. Though the original Dragon Ball, the first one, premiered I think even earlier than that, maybe like ninety three, four. Yeah. I remember watching it as a kid. It was a limited release. I think yeah. they were really trying to test the markets. But it really happened in 95 when anime went from weird Japanese thing that we need to pretend is not Japanese <laughs> to it's so awesome that it's Japanese and now you can buy the original Japanese audio in you know Suncoast or whatever the retail store was at the time. So there was this big change where we went from seeing Japan as a weird other place to a place that produces stuff we actually want. And yeah. it happened right when Chrono came out. So I think that was a big part of it. The other games, like Secret of Mana, really didn't embrace that aesthetic. The characters had the sprite look, but the art mm. was not pure anime. It was Japanese-y, in a sense, mm. but it wasn't It wasn't something that someone could say, that's an anime character. So I think Chrono Trigger may have been one of the first games in the JRPG genre in the US, or North America, rather, to really say, yeah, this is an anime aesthetic, and really run with it. Even Breath of Fire from Enix a couple Ooh. years ago they redesigned those characters to make them look more American comic style. So you yeah. can look at the covers and see how they adapted an anime character to be, <laughs> you know, a sort of uh, knockoff anime, that um, American style slick, but not anime style. So mm -hmm. things certainly changed in that era, and I think Chrono hit at just the right time for it to be relevant in so many ways. Yeah. T, are there any famous last words we have not addressed at this point? There are some. Mm -hmm. Nicola, our guest from last week, mm -hmm. uh, fellow Nick, had asked, is the fan base <laughs> very close to Final Fantasy in terms of demography? Uh, I don't think we dug any hard data into that, but I, I think based on conversation, the answer is probably. Probably. Yeah. I would, I would yeah. venture a probably there. Um, I think it would be hard to really quantify that demography anyway. I mean, there'd be a lot of self-reported data mm -hmm. and how people would identify is going to skew things. And also there's a, a time element. I mean, people in their thirties are probably more drawn to it than people in their teens, for instance. So yeah. uh, just because the series has not continued, I think the demography question is, is fairly easy to make some good guesses at. I did find a, a thread, a question on Quora asking, you know, between Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger, which one's the better game? And something, <laughs> something that consistently came up was the comparison, um, of Chrono Trigger being fairly lighthearted, has its serious moments, but you know, overall, like a it's like an after-school anime, whereas Final Fantasy VI was lauded as more of like a a dark game filled with mature themes. I think that's a good way of looking at it, even though I don't think one implies better. But also, even though Chrono was much more lighthearted, a lot of that was Ted Woolsey, the translator, injecting humor where he thought the yeah. game was getting a little boring honestly he thought it was dragging so let's let's punch it up let's make some jokes so he made some jokes and final fantasy 6 he also translated that as well yeah. so there's a lot of jokes i think that were present in there moments of true humor that he really embraced but it is worth mm -hmm. noting that nobody really quotes chrono trigger but you could find a lot of people that have great one-liners from final fantasy 6 and maybe that's just the 
comparative paucity of text in Chrono Trigger to the sheer amount of text-driven story mm. in Final Fantasy VI that you're mm. bound to find just a bunch of memorable lines. And in Chrono Trigger, you know, I, I think the most memorable line is one not spoken by anybody, but the future refused to change. That's like yeah. on-screen flavor text from a disembodied narrator. I mean, what does Chrono say? Nothing. Does Magus ever make you crack up? He has an ellipsis as a dialogue line. Like, <laughs> great writing, buddy. Um, I don't know. Yeah, they, I can't quote from the game. I, I played it. I I, <laughs> I read the script in three different translations, three versions, and there's not a single line in there that I think is worth remembering. It's more of the story. I think when I pull out a quote from Chrono Trigger, I'm just like fond of it because it's from Chrono Trigger, rather than it's particularly well written or memorable. Mm-hmm. Like I always yeah. pull out mountains are nice <laughs> from that dude just sitting looking at the view who eventually gives you some kind of tab. <laughs> But like, yeah, you're right. It's not like it's not quotable, really. No, it's not. It's not quotable. It's not crammed with incredible dialogue. But uh... I mean, the one that always half comes to mind, and and maybe that's it's saying something about the quotability is the one from Flea: male, female. What does it matter? Power is beautiful, and I've got the power. <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually one line that I really wanted to dwell on in my book because it was an early element of a non-binary sexuality represented. And also that you could read it as empowering as a, you know, a Westerner in 2014 when I wrote the book. Or you could look at it as a Japanese person did in 1995 as people who are not binary gendered, people who are trans, are something to be comical, something to laugh at. So there's the way the character designed has been, I think, reclaimed by modern players of the game, which is great. But again, that was one quote that I thought was worth taking out because it seems so radical that... You wouldn't find that in a game that was authored by an American company at that time. Not at all. I don't no. think any game would have been brave enough to put a quote in. Someone would have said, mm. this is getting censored, we're taking that out. So I'm a little surprised Nintendo didn't catch it. But again, there was so much text in the game. You know the censor was probably <laughs> skimming. And he, <laughs> the censor missed that one exchange. It was like, yeah, yeah, it's all good. There's no cursing. I didn't see any F-bombs. Okay. <laughs> put it on the shelves. Uh, right. Kind of a fun question. Kind of a joke question. But... If you had to remove one named character from the game, who would you remove and why? Jeez, uh, good question. Wow, there are a bunch of named characters in the game, but probably Dalton, honestly. <laughs> He's a character who doesn't have an arc. Mm-hmm. His boss fight is the most annoying boss fight in the game. Yeah. Uh, during my recent replay for researching the book, I just kept dying at this boss fight because he can have your HP uh, very easily and then he can make short work of you. I didn't remember how to defeat him and his golem monsters. And I was I was just cursing at the screen at that point until I finally cheated because I was like, I got to write this book. I don't care about playing ethically. I just need to get through this chapter of the game. So him, absolutely Dalton. Um, okay. Useless character. Did nothing for me. Kind of an ass. Yeah. Get him out of there. <laughs> yeah, just something... Sorry about you, Dalton. <laughs> oh, his gross hair, too. Just gross <laughs> hair. You, Fabio wannabe. It looks like Roger Daltrey. <laughs> I always was suspicious of Toma. Because oh. he acted like you guys were good friends, but, like, I don't remember you. <laughs> yeah, like that dude at the bar who wants to bum a smoke from you yeah. all the time. He's, yep. yeah... There's a lot of characters that you wish something more happened with them in the game. Mm-hmm. And maybe in a series, 
that really continued, more would have come of them. There's the little young knight named Tata who wants to be a hero yeah. someday, but we never get to see if he does or not. Um, there's that Specchio, the magic master, who can take different forms. Who is he? Is he a weird, you know, being from beyond? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was kind of a dick to you, but he was helpful. <laughs> but who is he? Who knows? There's tons of cool characters that never had a background. And I like that there's that mystery there, too. But had the series continued, I would have expected there to be more metaphysics explaining the place mm-hmm. of these people in the world. But still, Dalton, <laughs> get him out of there. <laughs> Yeah, all the talk about writing and story, I just had to had to ask that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so again, circling back to what is the fandom like? The fandom is this. The fandom are the people who are still producing stuff, who are talking in Reddit and sharing a news story about, hey, it's the you know 30th anniversary of the game. Time to revisit it and remember why we hated everything that happened <laughs> after it. You know, it's maintenance. I think it's a fandom mm. of maintenance more than it is one of growth and active participation, just because the copyright holders are not giving you much to work with. All right, is it spotlight time? I think it might be spotlight time. All right. Spotlight. So, spotlight is where we highlight something cool related to this week's episode. So the first one is actually something that I stumbled across while doing the research because I was trying to find demographic information on Chrono Trigger fans. I did not find that, but instead I found a website called JRPG Demographics. It has not been updated and does not look like it will be updated for a long, long time, but it tries to take down demographics of the characters in different games by age, roughly, uh, gender, and uh, whether they're like a fighter or a magician or balanced or whatever. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, if you look up Chrono Trigger, because it's one of the very few games that is listed there, is that it has a kind of perfect balance of gender. It has 42% male, 42% female, and one uh, unidentified, because Robo doesn't have a stated gender. Uh, And it looks like it's fairly balanced in terms of like age and fighter type. I don't know. It's neat. You should check it out. It's just like a fun little short website. There's not much to it. Can I interject something there? Because I went through the DS version of the game and counted every human character and demographied them. So I do have some information about those statistics in my book. But Mm -hmm. yes, the different eras of the game have different gender balances. And there are characters that are not specifically coded as one particular gender. So... I did a lot of legwork in this department. So if the site is ever updated, I do hope they cite my book. Okay. <laughs> it's entirely referring to the, like, playable characters. Ah, okay. Yeah, I, I counted it... all the humans in the world and almost went nuts <laughs> trying to create a spreadsheet of oh my them. goodness. So, yeah, that was, that was tough and maddening. Well, good thing you don't have to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I was going to mention actually comes back to my famous last words, which... Where has anyone written a musical about Chrono Trigger? And there is, and it's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. What is it called? If you just look up Chrono Trigger, the musical on YouTube, I will include the link in the show notes, but it's like a million times faster to just Google that. I think they started releasing the episodes in January, and I was like, oh, this is great. I listened to it. They have a plan for like 60 or so tracks, and they've only made it through 39. And I was like, oh, where's this track that I love? Oh, they haven't recorded it yet. But it's been amazing. It's a lot of music. Like, it, it's the music that you know and love from Chrono Trigger, but they've kind of made it into a musical. It's w- a little bit weird because Chrono is a character yeah. with ambitions. And, yeah. <laughs> but it's great. I think it features a bunch of people from various spots on the internet. Cool. 
so you should check that out. The other one, Chrono Compendium, was mentioned numerous times on this episode, which you can find at chronocompendium.com. Uh, its mission is twofold. It aims to archive and catalog all existing knowledge and possible speculation regarding Chrono series. And its second thing is to foster the growth and development of the Chrono series. It's been running since 2003. It started as a 50-page thread on Overclocked Remixes forums. Wow. And it's been running like for the last 15 years. <laughs> And if anybody from there is listening, I would like to thank them for the website, which was yes. a fantastic resource in uh, writing this book because there were some resources that had been translated by them, which I was grateful for. So I didn't have to translate it myself or acquire it from Japan. So these fan sites are great for preserving history of games, uh, even if it's sometimes a little fragmentary and you need to rebuild it yourself. Good work to those people. Yeah. So that is the last of the many spotlights for this week, which I was surprised we had so many. Mike, what would you like to plug? So, I am pleased to announce that Chrono Trigger, uh, which was volume two of Boss Fight Books, uh, available through bossfightbooks.com or at a bookstore near you. And if it's not at a bookstore near you, ask the owner to buy it. (laughs) We love having our books in independent bookstores. And you can also go to Amazon if that's your thing. It's there. But this book, after many months of struggling against a microphone, the audiobook of Chrono Trigger, narrated by none other than me, has been released. And if you like listening to people talk, that's the book for you. We've got a couple of audiobooks in the Boss Fight series out, but they're very time-heavy products. So uh, if you like reading about video games and you don't want to listen to me jabber on, there's Chrono Trigger, the book, and 17 other titles in the Boss Fight book series, uh, each book about a classic video game. Though your definition of classic may differ from some of the titles that we have produced, I hope you enjoy the uh, variety of perspectives that our anthology of uh, nonfiction writers have produced. So hope you guys check us out. I am in the midst of editing two of our titles right now and hope to have Katamari Damasi Shovel Knight out on shelves in the next couple of months and then many more to come. So... Boss Fight Books at bossfightbooks.com and uh, on Twitter and anywhere where you can Google that phrase, you're going to find something. I do like bringing this up because it's a fun fact that I found out by myself. Hmm. It was in a, was GamePro, Electronic Game Monthly, one of those. That kind of showed you, showed you some of the games that were coming out in Japan. <laughs> and it was like, I'll bring it and leave it, except probably two phrases that rhymed. But, you know, bring it over or keep it. And Katamari Damacy was in the keep it. They're like, this game looks weird. I, no one would play this over here. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I found that at work one day, leaving through a magazine. I thought that was so funny. Because <laughs> it's an incredible game. Yeah, the book's cool. Our author, Ellie Hall, she managed to get in touch with Keita Takashi, the creator of the game, and had some new interviews with him looking back on the success of the game and just sort of what it has meant to him as an artist. So a lot of our books try and find a developer angle and see sort of the cultural history of the game and the creators of the game, you know, what they feel about it, what they have to say now that the game is out and been received in the world. And, uh, you know, basically it's it's a little history project that we're working on one game at a time. We'll probably never get to all the games, but we're going to get to (laughs) as many games as our writers think are interesting. And if you read Chinese, our first Chinese translations just got published. Mm. Uh, we have some French ones on the horizon for any francophones who may be listening. If you've got 
listenership in Quebec. Some Quebecois <laughs> may enjoy reading our titles. But yeah, so we're, uh, we're really trying to expand our series and we're doing a lot of cool stuff and I'm really proud to be a, a part of it and very happy to be on your show talking about it as well. So thank you for having me. My pleasure. If you've listened to all of Mike's audiobook and you're still hungry for more fan audio content, you can head over to phantopological.com and listen to all of our episodes. We must have cracked. No, no, we're not quite at 100. We got a lot. We got a lot of episodes for you. So go listen there. You can listen on Spotify. All our episodes are up there or the podcatcher of your choice. And while you're there, if you could click the subscribe button, follow whatever you got in front of you and uh, leave a rating or review, that'd be much appreciated. If there's a topic that you'd like to hear us cover on the show, please email us nick at thenixcast.com or you can find us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, or Facebook, all at the Nixcast. So... If you like our podcast and you want to show your support, you can actually go to shop.thenextcast.com. We do have some merch there. It's not a lot, but some of it includes the Race Against Time shirts. And also, we include some just general anthropological shirts. If you want to have like some cool glasses and a, and a logo on your chest somewhere around here. And we'll continue to make cool new shirts as time goes on. And so uh, if you want to check that out, you can go to shop.thenextcast.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, you might also, while you're surfing the internet, while you're racing your jet bike down the information super highway <laughs> you might also want to uh click on over to twitch.tv slash the nixcast and you know why would you want to do something like that well you want to do it to uh first off of course subscribe but also to go there every monday night around 8 p.m when we uh record these episodes live and you know well you're watching us, listening to us record these episodes live. You can you know, interact with us a little bit, ask questions in the chat. If there's something interesting going on in the chat and you want to participate in that, go ahead. Have a little show within a show. It's always awesome when that happens. And as well as participating in that way, you can also participate in a different way if you're at twitch.tv slash the next cast. When uh, we are recording an episode live, you can participate in the famous last words. Famous last words. That's right. Just like we had mentioned earlier in the show, we can say some stupid things this week before we do the research for next week. Or just ask questions that we don't know where they're going to go. Uh, next week, we are going to be talking with another podcast, the You You Hacker Show, talking about You You Hacker Show. <laughs> Shonen anime from the 90s. So, folks, what are your famous last words around the Yu Yu Hakusho fandom? We out. And say, do fans consider it to be um, passed over at all? Hmm. To me, it was like this shonen show that was like in the valley between Dragon Ball and One Piece. <laughs> You'd also throw like Shaman King in there, I guess. Yeah. Yu Yu Hakusho, a little bit older, I think. Do fans have like a, an underdog mentality or like a Napoleon complex about their fandom? <laughs> I feel like Yu Yu Hakusho was too early for its time. It's the Detective Conan meets Yokai Watch that <laughs> I never really watched and I'm only vaguely aware of. So those are the two properties that Hugh is the closest to in my mind. But add some collectible ghosts and demons, and that is the show for me. But... <laughs> <laughs> All right. I was going to ask are fans waiting for a revival or did they move on to other shonen titles? All right. I'm going to ask a uh, softball at myself. 
Maybe you'll hit it out of the park <laughs> and kind ask, of you. what's the most common pairing in thick? And of those characters, what's their canonical relationship? And <laughs> what is the difference or similarity between those two things maybe say about the fans? You went from a really straightforward question <laughs> to a not so straightforward I, I guess I should have said a soft curveball. Okay. <laughs> Right. Before we wrap up, um, Artemidge has a question. He was wondering if, uh, Mike, you know of any bookstores in southern Ontario that have Boss Fight books, books? Well, I can tell you, I tried to find every independent bookstore in Canada and advertised to them. Uh, I don't know that our catalogs went through to everybody, but if there's a store that you really like, just ask them if that's something they would consider carrying. If they don't really want to carry the titles, maybe they'll just special order it for you. And like I said, you'll give them a little extra money. You'll feel good about supporting a local business. And maybe you'll buy a book that you end up loving or hating. You can check out our reviews on Amazon and Goodreads. Read the one stars and the five star reviews. And you'll get a pretty good idea of what our series is all about. (laughs) And know if it's for you, if it's not for you. But I hope it's for you. And even if you're hate reading my book, which plenty of people did, (laughs) hate read it and uh, just don't tweet at me. Okay. Hate read it and leave an angry comment on your blog where Google will pick it up and I'll read it one morning and feel awful about myself. So that's fine. I'll cry in private. Don't make me cry in public. But maybe you'll love our books. Thank you. Thank you for asking that question. And uh, thanks for considering supporting the books. It's a really great series. Thank you. The only thing that remains is to say thank you again, Mike, for coming on. We appreciate your expert insight on this subject, a a game that we all really love. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me, letting me talk about it. Nick T, Nick G, and Nick Z. I, I love the multiple Nicks. I feel like I'm in middle school when I'm just talking about the other kids in school using the Nick Z I'm calling you. Is Nick Z better? I'm sorry. We say Z because it rhymes with the other two. It's, yeah, it, yep. it rhymes. Yep. It rhymes. So thank you, various Nicks. You're very welcome. Glad to have you on. <laughs> all right. So on behalf of two Nicks here and all the Nicks out there in, in podcast land, Uh, and myself. Until next time, we'll talk to you next time. Goodbye, everybody. has been sealed by a mysterious force. Would you like to open it? Today we're talking about fans of Chrono Trigger. Wait, hold on. I can do this. Hold on. (laughs) That's all I got. Fantastic. That's the two cent version. Get it on iTunes now. I'm dropping it hot on SoundCloud.
Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Phantopological. My name is Nick G, and if you chose not to open the podcast...